Hey everyone, this is Justin. If you're a fan of the show, you could really help us out by heading over to iTunes and giving us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. In this installment of This Is Happening America, strength and honor in ancient Rome and mob rule in modern America, news that's local somewhere, we dig deep into the basket of deplorables and continue to celebrate awesomeness with a star-spangled awesome award. I'm Mark Betancourt. And I'm Justin Mara with just one thing to say to our loyal listeners out there somewhere. Are you not entertained? Theme song. Welcome to episode nine of This Is Happening America. I'm Mark. I'm Justin. And we're back, finally, after a long, deep uh, research session uh, for this episode. <laughs> this was a this was a particularly challenging episode, but it, uh, I think we're gonna you're gonna enjoy it. It was very cumbersome, but that's why we always back ourselves up with a couple of extra episodes to keep you guys entertained. And thank you so much for all of our loyal subscribers. Our numbers are growing. Yes, and uh, hello to everyone listening in the United Arab Emirates. Yes, and Germany. And Brazil, and all of you in Canada. It is really humbling to see our listenership growing and uh, all of the wonderful places that people are turning in from. Yes, absolutely. It's also in, it's also enlightening that countries around the world are very interested in what the heck is happening in America. I think it's safe to say everyone's interested in, with what is happening in America, Mark. It's very it's very, very interesting times we live in right now. I mean, you know, things are happening every day. Things that we used to get right, we we can't get right anymore. Like yeah. envelopes. <laughs> More on that later. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing fantastic, Justin. How are you? This was a particularly difficult week. I'm glad it's over. Yes, it was difficult for me too. The weather changed again it, here yes. in New England, and every time the weather changes, I my 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 sinuses act up. It might be TMI for you, but in case I sound a little extra nasally today and sound worse than I usually do on the mic, that's why. I, I don't notice a difference. Really? Yeah. I don't know if you that's sound, a good th- you sound good in the cans. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, we'll roll with it. And right now we're going to roll into our main feature which we're very excited to present to you today and was inspired by Academy Awards Best Picture winners in 2000 when Gladiator won. The safety of our citizens must not depend on men who flatter their masters, slandering our citizens, but on our confidence in the law. That's Athenian statesman Aeschines, arguing for the soul of his city-state near the fall of Athens. He would lose that debate and spend the rest of his life in exile, keeping the embers of democracy alive at Rhodes. Because for as long as citizens have had sway over their government, it's always come down to the right amount of participation from a mob of citizens who enact change. What we do in life may echo for eternity, but until we get there, Justin and I are raising our voices above the history of American democracy to show our viewers or listeners, whatever you are, the country's true ties to an ancient world power. 70 years removed from World War II, Americans' imaginations still run wild with the exploits of the greatest generation. 
and the convictions of a president who believed the world could be made safe for democracy. The U.S. emerged from that conflict the leader of the free world, and for more than half a century coveted that identity. It may be surprising then to learn that today the United States ranks just 41st on the World Press Freedom Index, and was, for the first time since the founding of the Democracy Index, identified as a flawed democracy by The Economist magazine's Intelligence Unit report, and now teeters on the verge of becoming a regime. It would be easy to lay this at the feet of the current president, but the 2016 report collected data samples through 2015, making that a difficult sell. When scratching beneath the surface, it becomes clear that in the 200-plus years the U.S. has existed as a nation, it's had a difficult relationship with democratic ideals. That difficulty has been paramount since inception. Americans often forget that just 10 years after declaring independence, a second bloodless revolution occurred when the Founding Fathers ripped up the Articles of Confederation, the nation's first government, and drafted the Constitution. Determined to learn from a history riddled with fallen governments and defunct states, the great minds of the Revolutionary Age, Adams, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, debated the direction of their new nation. They rejected the idea of democracy in favor of a systematic republic. That's right, rejected. We are a republic, said Alexander Hamilton. Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. Believe what you want, folks, but the founding fathers were dead set against democracy. It's another alternative fact. The 20th century seems to have been the great democratic age. More democracies took shape on planet Earth after World War II than any time before. But when looking a little deeper, we again see the same cautious trepidation regarding democracy. Henry Louis Mencken, journalist, author, and satirist, helped shape American opinion during the early 20th century. He reported on the monkey trial where Scopes made his famous case for evolution. Democracy, he wrote, is a pathetic belief in the collective wisdom of individual ignorance. More surprising still are the views of freedom's champion, Winston Churchill. He once quipped, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. And with good reason. Democracy puts complete control of the decision-making process into the hands of the people. Every citizen of the state has a voice, which is why in the past citizenship was so heavily restricted. In ancient Athens, citizens would literally drop what they were doing go to the city center where any citizen could speak to the assembly and vote on decisions by simply holding up their hands. The majority won the day. As citizenship waxed over time, the quality waned. Athenians voted virtually anything into law multiple times a month in a never-ending campaign cycle that was skewed by populist demagoguery of the day, literally giving birth to the term. Demagogues were especially dangerous because of their ability to incite a mob mentality for their own gain over needs or desires of the people. And it was this fear specifically the ancient Romans were afraid of in the late 6th century BCE. Details of this time are hazy. The Romans didn't start writing or keeping historic records until the 3rd century BCE, but it's generally accepted that the people of Rome overthrew the monarchy of tyrannical Lucius Tarquinius Superbus in 509 BCE and instituted a government comprised of the people. They decided against a direct democracy where the people could be easily swayed. Instead, they instituted a system of checks and balance, the First Republic, a system where even the government was guarded from the whims of the people themselves and would vote for elected officials who would represent them in an organized fashion with rules governing three distinct branches, executives, legislators, and judges. Sound familiar? 
It's no coincidence America's founding fathers were heavily influenced by the ancient Romans. After living under the chaos and instability of the Articles of Confederation, the idea of dividing power amongst several groups to act as checks and balances was appealing. Specifically, it was John Adams who was the driving force behind the New Republic. Heavily influenced by the Roman orator and council, Marcus Tullius Cicero, during the later stages of the Roman Republic, Adams borrowed on Cicero's most famous works, De Legibus and De Republica, for the U.S. Constitution. Cicero had this to say about the idea of liberty, claiming, If liberty is not equally enjoyed by all citizens, it is not liberty at all. There must be equality under the law with no special exemptions. In De Republica, Cicero outlines the pros and cons of three common types of governments, monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. He envisioned them as a cycle, writing, Tyrants receive it from kings, from tyrants it passes either to aristocrats or to the people, and from the people to oligarchs or tyrants. His solution was a fourth way, formed by an equal balancing and blending of the other three forms. For all of Cicero's writings regarding liberty and equality for all, he believed the worst form of these governments was a democracy, saying it would always eventually lead to mob rule. And the founding fathers agreed. While all men are created equal sounds great, they were terrified of their uneducated constituents making such huge decisions for our country, like selecting a president or presiding over important doctrine and laws. Of course, this was all taking place during a time with limited literacy and even less access to education, but it's why we have the Electoral College and a three-branch system of government with checks and balances. So, it was all good in the hood for Rome, right, Justin? Well, Mark, it worked well during Rome's phase as a city-state, but governing an increasingly growing republic is more complicated than you'd think. Oh, you mean just like healthcare? Yes! Who'd imagine that governing a multi-ethnic, region, religious, language-speaking, socioeconomic nation would be so complicated? Mm, that sounds familiar. It does. We have come up with a solution that's really, really, I think, very good. Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. The tensions mounting in our American Republic are staggeringly similar to what happened to the Roman Republic. Cicero's Rome had grown from its infant city-state to the far-reaching continental military occupation that was the Republic, and it was in trouble. Tensions were always there between two specific classes of people, the patricians and the plebeians. The patricians were elites, the old and wealthy families, who were the ones who could hold office in the Senate or become one of the two councils who ruled from an executive level. Plebeians were average working-class citizens, farmers, commoners, who at the start of the Republic were granted the rights to vote for magistrates, but the patricians basically ran the government. Sound familiar? Mm, minus the ever-shrinking middle class. This led to the conflict of the orders that started in 494 BCE and would last for hundreds of years. For fear of an uprising or any angry mob, the patricians would gradually concede more to the plebeians, including their own assembly. The Council of Plebs. And by keeping the plebeians relatively happy, the patricians, senate, and councils of Rome continued military campaigns to expand the republic. But trouble was on the horizon. A democratic government is the only one in which those who vote for a tax can escape the obligation to pay it, said French author Alexia de Tocqueville. All that power, wealth, and land you grab, for what? What's the purpose of swelling your democratic ideals if you lose the idea of democracy in the process? 
This was why Cicero was writing his argument for a more balanced government, because he saw the political maneuvering going on around him. He saw the rise of a demagogue. His name was Julius Caesar. The checks and balances were working, but often were influenced by fear of the mob or by fear of a tyrant rising, which famously led to the death of Caesar in 44 BCE and Cicero's own demise in 43 BCE, getting in the middle of the contentious battle for power between Mark Antony and Caesar's son Octavian, who would become Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Just like that, the Republic was no more. Cicero's cycle of governments was complete. He saw it coming. It didn't happen overnight. And it couldn't have even been prevented at times. The downfall wasn't due to one man. It wasn't one event. It was the need for control of the mob due to the divide of classes despite a well-formed, well-intentioned government, for the most part. Even as emperor, Augustus did everything he could to appease the plebeian class so they wouldn't riot and overthrow him. He would continually bribe them with days of free bread, controlled food prices and free entertainment like the chariot races and gladiatorial spectacles that would keep the mob roaring through the hallowed echo chamber of the Colosseum. Substitute bread and games with EBT and guns? You'll hear the same echoes on Capitol Hill or the halls of Parliament. Cicero may have just as easily predicted the rise of the Tea Party, Brexit, or the election of Donald Trump. Consistently throughout ancient history, as well as our own contemporary history, the mob rules. In an article published in The Diplomat in June of 2016, associate editor Franz Stefan Gatti said it best regarding Brexit. In one sense, the Brexit referendum illustrates as much the failure of the experts and elected politicians as it shows that relying on the masses and populism can lead to suspect and potentially damaging decisions. In that sense, we have to guard ourselves against direct democracy being hijacked by demagogues and populists, lest we have to endure the tyranny of the majority at the expense of wiser policies. It only took 36% of Britons to vote on Brexit, not even close to a majority of the population. Or, if you prefer a movie reference, Syracuse alum and distinguished screenwriter Aaron Sorkin gave Michael Douglas these words to say from the 1990 film The American President. We have serious problems to solve, and we need serious people to solve them. And whatever your particular problem is, I promise you, Bob Rumson, or in this case, Donald Donald Trump, Trump, is not the least bit interested in solving it. He is interested in two things and two things only, making you afraid of it and telling you who's to blame for it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you win elections. You gather a group of middle-aged, middle-class, middle-income voters who remember with longing an easier time, and you talk to them about family and American values and character. Sound familiar? It took less than 30% of Americans to elect President Trump through the Electoral College. These are hardly majorities, but they were the loudest, more organized mobs that came at the right time in the right places. Hey, if you like what you're hearing and you're a fan of the show, feel free to uh, follow us on Twitter at TIH underscore America. You can also check us out at Facebook or email us at thisishappeningamerica at gmail.com. And that brings us to this week's installment of News That's Local Somewhere, because just like politics, all news is local somewhere. 
And just as a friendly reminder to everybody, Justin and I actually do not share these articles with each other until we're actually hitting record. So, Justin. All right. Definitively, a judge has ruled that a Snuggie is in fact a blanket and not a robe. <laughs> so really a judge had to weigh in on that <laughs> i know it's been vexing you since its inception so J- justin just help me out judge judges get paid by the state right i, I honestly this was out of uh, it, 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 it comes out of taxpayers money right right yes right. so ta- so taxpayers paid a judge to rule on whether or not a Snuggie was a blanket or a robe. So this decision comes out of uh, New York City at the International Court of Trade. You liberals. And, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, as seen on TV, the Snuggie blanket with sleeves should, in fact, be classified as a blanket and live as a separate entity from robes or priestly vestments. The ruling following the Justice Department's argument that Snuggies are apparel and not blankets... So they should be subjected to higher duties and bl- and then blankets. So judge, do, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say. So does that affect where in the store they put the snuggie? Does it now have to? Does, yes. it, that, does it now have to go in bed and bath instead of women's it, and men's attire? Yes, it is does. That, that, and that's law. That's a law. It, it is a law, and this is all over taxation. The United States Justice Department was trying to get the snuggie classified as a robe, so higher duties would have to be pay, paid up. taxes. We're talking about taxes here. It's all about taxes uh, with representation. Is. Judge March, uh, Mark Bennett of the Court of International Trade said during the trial that the Customs and Borders Protection was in the wrong to classify the Snuggie as a parable. Barnett cites the Snuggie's use of marketing as the blanket, specifically refer, referring to the packaging with the phrase, the blanket with sleeves. The judge also <laughs> added that those who purchase Snuggies may be likely in the need of situations one might use a blanket for while seated or reclining on a couch or bed. We're outside cheering on a sports team. He's literally quoting from the Snuggie infomercial. In his opinion, the addition of sleeves was not enough to have the Snuggie be considered a piece of clothing and added that the use of sleeves allowed the Snuggie to remain in place and keep the user warm while allowing the user to engage in a certain activity requiring use of their hands. So you can't even read this with a straight face. I really can't. I'm, I'm, yes, I cannot get through this. I'm perplexed that this was an issue. I'm more perplexed and baffled that the dis- the judge's decision was, in fact, the Snuggies infomercial. So, to, I, so to, clearly, this is the most important thing that had to be decided, adjudicated adjudicated in the United States today. Does this does this mean that that it's illegal for people to wear a Snuggie as an article of clothing? That's an excellent question, Mark. We, we might have to try that next. I mean, that I mean that is on that's honestly one of the dumbest things. It's, it's up there. I've ever heard. It's it's right up there with air pressure and footballs. Uh, all right, Mark. Honestly. What do you got for us? All right. Um. Well, on a serious note, you know, immigration has been a hot button topic for a couple of weeks now, and everybody's kind of scared about what's happening. You know, and everybody's got an opinion about it. Uh, this is a story out from um, Presidio County, Texas, uh, where allegedly two hunters were shot in an emo- a remote ranch claiming that illegal immigrants had ambushed them. I, I'm sorry? 
two hunters. The hunters were shot. The hunters were shot. Okay. I'm with you now. And claimed that they were, they were shot by illegal immigrants. Okay. I'm with you. Turns out after further investigation, fingers crossed. It's fake news. It's not real. Didn't happen. It's fake. It's fake. Sad. Expiratory mark. Turns out investigators believe this was a case of friendly fire. Yes. They pulled a Dick Cheney. Yes. <laughs> so these guys went out hunting. One of them shot the other. Yes. And they tried to blame it on an, an ambush by some quote, not my words, some quote, bad hombres. Some bad hombres. Unquote. Yes. Um, so, yes, he tells the uh, so Presidio County Sheriff Danny Dominguez uh, has been saying all along that there was no indication of cross-border vi- Like, he didn't, f- they didn't have the evidence to say that it was a cross-border flyer. They just had the guy's words. So, the he tells us the investigation shows that Walker Daughtry shot Edwin Roberts and another hunting guide in their group, uh, Michael Bryant, who actually shot Walker. So, and of course, you know, when they said that this was an illegal immigrant thing, it shocked people and everybody got all riled up and everything. And, uh, the, uh, the, it's, it says here from the local, uh, CBS affiliate that, uh, the alleged attack captivated thousands of people after a family friend set up a GoFundMe account stating that Walker and his group were involved in a shootout with some illegals that were trying to steal his RV. This is literally the plot to a Walker, Texas Ranger episode. Yes. And Chuck Norris is nowhere to be found. (sighs) Um, Damn so Chuck Norris. Inve- here's how investigators believe the shooting happened. Um, Walker thought illegals were inside the RV that Edwin and his wife were in in an attempt to kidnap them. Of course. Of course. That's the logical explanation. Instead of announcing himself into the van, Walker allegedly tried to open the RV. And that's when Edwin fired off a round from inside the RV missing Walker. Walker immediately ran inside his cabin to go grab his gun because that's what you do when you're in a gun. This is so not funny. I'm sorry. This is Um, so not funny. And so, you know, so essentially these guys... So yeah, wait, a minute. wait, 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 yep. wait, wait, go ahead. Person A outside the van thought that the people inside the van were being held against their will by, quote, illegal immigrants, unquote. And the people in the van thought that the person outside trying to enter their van was also, quote, an illegal immigrant, well, because I mean, listen, that the the rumors, the, everything about you know, I mean, border fi- border violence between Mexico and the United States has been perpetrated through the press and through our uh, elected officials. Oh my goodness! All right, Justin, what else? What do you got next? All right, Mark, um, have you ever played Fallout Three or any of the Fallout games? Yes. Okay, then. So you're going to be able to envision this, and uh-huh. I have images. We'll link you to it. One million people are living in underground nuclear bunkers in Beijing, China. What, what, what? How many? One million. Okay. So that, beneath the streets of Beijing, people have moved into fallout bunkers. shelters constructed during the Cold War uh, as suitable housing because there's no housing available in Beijing. Oh, I thought it was because they thought the apocalypse was oh, actually. Oh close. no, no, they're just no, they just there's no housing. They're available. just living there, so they're squatting inside bunkers, old. Uh, old 
fallout bunkers. Oh. Um, so here, here's the first image for you. Oh, that's it's like, that, it's that, like a that, college dormitory gone hor- horribly wrong. Oh, oh, this is actually, oh no, this is sad. Oh, this is not a funny story. Yeah, no, that's not funny story no. at all. See, I try to find funny stories. Uh, so in the late 1960s and 70s, anticipating a devastating nuclear war, uh, Chairman Mao directed Chinese cities to construct apartments with bomb shelters capable of withstanding the blast of a nuclear bomb. In Beijing alone, there are roughly 10,000 bunkers that were constructed. Uh, when China opened its door to the broader world in the 1980s, Beijing's Defense Department seized the opportunity to lease the shelters to private landlords eager to profit from converting these erstwhile fallout shelters into tiny residential units. And now, when night falls, more than a million people, mostly migrant workers and students from rural areas, vanish from Beijing's bustling streets into this underground universe. Well, it definitely looks like it's from the 1970s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the here is... Oh, look, they're even they're even watching Tom and Jerry. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like some kind of crazy college camp gone horribly wrong. So there's, there's no ventilation. There are no lights. Uh, here's a hair salon. Ooh, that's old school. The windows just look out into hallways. Um, and so the problem here is that local law requires a minimal living space of four square meters. It's like 43 square feet per tenant, which in many cases go ignored in these places. Um, And you have families upwards of six or eight living in one room. In 2010, grappling with the issue of landlord neglect and safety hazards, Beijing prohibited nuclear shelters and other storage spaces as residential use. But as you may imagine, the cleanup effort has been incredibly difficult because they are underground and literally a maze of networks. Not to mention, if you got no place else to go, where do you go? Right. Yeah. Um, Beijing is the world's third most expensive residential city to live in. Uh, the average real estate cost is $5,820 a month. What? Yeah. That's more expensive than New York. Yep. On average, one square meter, 10.8 square feet is $5,820 per month. Wow. Yeah. So, um... You know, if you're in Beijing, if you're trying to figure out how to make it uh, in the big city, look no further than underground. Mark, what do you got for us? Wow, these are that's these ha- are kind of downers this week. That's, hap- that's happening in a, that's happening in in China. Yeah, yeah, one of the world powers. Well, I'm gonna heat things up. All right, okay, I'm ready. Um, Justin, yes, Mark. When you go for a haircut, yes, what do you expect your hair stylist? Uh, to use to style your hair. My uh, uh, my barber, who's been cutting my hair for the uh, close to the entirety of my life, um, he's going to use a blow dryer. Uh, he's going to use a little hair gel. Uh-huh. Um, comb. What about a blowtorch? Uh, no. No? Nowhere near my head. So in... I can't wait Ge- to see this. So in Gaza, turn- which is a small territory in Palestine... Turn that screen around. There is a barber... Yeah! Oh my goodness. Who's using blow torches to style hair. <laughs> that dude has third degree burns on his scalp. <laughs> Come on. In, is... in Ramadan Adwan's oh. barbershop, uh, hair isn't just blow dried, it's blow torched. This is an article I found off of the Huffington Post. And um, the, uh, 
you know, Odwan, the uh, the stylist, is saying that people have gone crazy about it. Many people are curious to go through the experience, yeah, and th- they are not afraid. People here love adventures. They've gone crazy, all right. Listen, not to l- listen, hearken uh, to our, our our Palestinian friends and listeners, but uh, yeah, I, when he says people here love adventures, I, you know, not that kind of adventure. But anyways, um, he he he's actually not the first stylist in the world uh, to use flames to straight straighten hair but uh he's he's one of the he's the only one in in gaza to 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 do it his shop is in southern gaza in a town in a town called rafa and um basically what he does is he puts kind of like a protective uh like gel which is actually a um in in Hollywood in stunt movies is is a pyrotechnic stunt. Sure, when you see somebody get lit up, get torched on fire, they have a fire a fireman suit on with the gel that gets lit on fire so that they don't actually light the clothes on fire. But those people get paid to right handsomely for the stunts. They're not going f- to lower their ears. <laughs> um, but he says, uh, "All I, I'm sorry. All I can think of is." The Simpsons episode, Flaming Moe's. Yeah. This but, is ridiculous. Yeah. He, he states that I control how long I apply the fire. I keep it on and off for 10 seconds or 15 seconds at a time. It's completely safe, and I have not encountered any accident since I started this. Guess how long ago? Five years. Two months. Two months. <laughs> this, is, this is literally like no accidents in this many days. Yeah. Uh, Adwan charges 20 shekels, uh, which is the equivalent of $5.20 for a haircut and fire straightening. So Uh, I was way over with my guesstimate of five years. Yes. Yes. Adwan has been a barber for 18 years, and he says part of the reason he uses the technique is to show that Palestinian barbers are as professional as those out there around the world. Right. Because everybody around the world is lighting people's hairs on fire. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. His, so, okay, this is in context of a campaign that came out, I want to say, right, at, right when John Kerry became Secretary of Stra- State, they Secretary start, of Straightening yeah, Hair. <laughs> Secretary of State, they started putting up billboards all over Israel and, uh, and Gaza and Palestine uh, of like, this is your doctor, he's a Palestinian, this is your nurse, she's Israeli. This is his, like, Palestinian barbers are skilled call too. To arms. Look... Look, I can set your head on fire and not kill you with a blowtorch. Oh my. That is legitimately the most ridiculous thing you've ever showed me in nine episodes <laughs> that's of, mo- of recording. That's more ridiculous than horsepower? Yes. Wow. And that brings us to this week's installment of the Basket of Deplorables. Mark, who's in this week's Basket of Deplorables? Justin, this week's pick is was signed sealed and delivered from none other than senator marco rubio uh marco rubio as you know is a senator from florida he was also a presidential candidate last year who got owned so bad in the primaries he didn't even win his own home state think about that for a second a, rep- a candidate for president running for the Republican primary couldn't even win his home state in the primary. That is particularly embarrassing. That's bad. So you would think Marco Rubio would be like, oh, man, I got to go. I, I got to go talk to my Florida people and, and find out what's wrong with with Floridians and, and, and try to help them a little bit. Right. Wrong. 
Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because Marco Rubio has been skipping out on his town hall meetings. Um, his reasoning is very simple. He's afraid that activists will heckle and scream at me. Sad face, sad face. They'll heckle and scream at you. They might heckle and scream at you because they're really upset about what's going on with the country right now and the fact that you are part of the problem and not doing anything about it. His point is that, quote, they're not town halls anymore. What these groups really want is for me to schedule a public forum. They then organize three, four, five, six hundred liberal activists in the two counties or wherever I am in the this state. This would be the Democratic part of our republic. Uh, Yes, the town halls is one of those ways that the that 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 democratic process is is held because it gives the chance for the people, we the people, to voice our concerns and frustrations with our with with our elected officials, i.e., Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio has decided not to do that because he's afraid that it'll become a media spectacle. Well, here's a couple of things. Number one, it's already become a media media spectacle because the liberal activists are actually doing a pretty good job of making it so. However, they are raising the bigger points. What are you doing about Obamacare? What are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And the Republicans, they don't have an answer for it. They've had eight years to come up with an answer, but they don't have one. So, uh, you, you know, the fact of the matter, the fact of the matter is this. All we're, all I think people are asking is for people like Mar Marco Rubio to take a page out of the New England Patriots playbook and do your job. It's your job to go talk to them. Do your job, man. Just do, just do, do your job. Suck it up and do it. Because let's be honest, if you're running from town hall meetings and a bunch of liberal activists, what are you gonna? What were you gonna do as president? And that brings us to this week's installment of the Tulsi Gabbard Star Spangled Awesome Award. All right, Justin, who are we giving an awesome award to? Well, Mark, this week we are awarding former representative Gabby Giffords. Gabby Giffords. What? Gabby Giffords. Gabby, Gif Gabby Giffords famously uh, was um, shot at a, at a 2000 in 2011. She was basically shot at a town hall. Yes, she was shot at a town hall meeting. The very town hall meetings that Marco Rubio... Um, doesn't doesn't want to attend because he's afraid of being heckled. So I guess, you know, Gabby Giffords probably agrees with Marco Rubio that town halls are dangerous and you should avoid them at all costs, right? Sure. No, the, the, that would be that would be no. That would be sarcasm, Justin. Yes, the, of course. Well, here's here's her quote to the politicians who have abandoned their civic obligations. I say this. Have some courage. Face your constituents. Hold town halls. Drop the microphone. Seriously. Now, this isn't a woman. Listen, for those that don't know, Gabby Giffords wasn't just like, uh, you know, she she wasn't she didn't just get like grazed. She didn't get shot in the arm or leg or is she got shot in the head. <laughs> she was shot yes. in the head. She should not be here right now. Miraculously and thankfully, she is miracles of modern medicine. Mark, you have anything you want to plug this week? Um, I do actually. Uh, I want to. Uh, well, Justin, we 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 were talking about this earlier that um, you went and saw Sinbad the other day. I did. Uh, this Thursday, I saw the comic legend, great and funk master extraordinaire Sinbad at the Comedy Connection in East Providence. It was fantastic. Uh, I laughed 
harder than I've laughed in a very long time. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, Mark, he's uh, heading out to L.A. If you're yeah, in the L.A. I think area, he's, I think he's heading out to L.A. Check out. Uh, yeah, he's on. He's on tour with his. Uh, you know, doing stand up comedy. So just because you you said it was a you said it was a great show, we figured we'd uh, we'd give Sinbad a shout out. Uh, especially now that we know that um, he actually wasn't in a movie called Shazam. Yes, definitively, definitively, and uh, and yeah, you should go uh, go check go go uh, to Ticketmaster or StubHub and see if you can't grab tickets to uh, his comedy show. Totally worth it. Cool. And uh, Mark, where can uh, people find you? Uh, people can find me at mark-bentoncourt.net and my blog, The Court of MVB. Uh, at some point, I will update it. And that'll be that'll be a that'll be a happy day. Um, you can also look forward to uh, some other musings of mine uh, coming up with uh, extra content on the This Is Happening America website, uh, thisishappeningamerica.com, or uh, on our Facebook page. Justin, plug away. Uh, yeah, I am very excited to share that I will be heading back to George's of Galilee in Rhode Island and also to Woodstock and Brewery up in New Hampshire this summer. You can find those dates at justinmarmusic.com and you can follow me at Shades Jam on Twitter. That does it for another episode of This Is Happening America. That's it for episode nine. If you want to talk to us or check us out further on social media, you can at our uh, new website, thisishappeningamerica.com. You can email us at thisishappeningamerica at gmail.com. Or you can ch- catch us on Twitter at T-I-H underscore America. Or on Facebook.com slash thisishappeningamerica. All right. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Uh, we'll catch you sometime, somehow, somewhere in the great country of America. Bangarang. Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.